0: Would you please now take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Exodus once again, and find Exodus chapter 7. With your Bible open, would you please just join with me as as we ask God for help. Let's pray together. Father, we pray, open your word to us now. I would ask that you would help us to see you in all your glory and all your might and in all your tender care. So God, I pray, come, grant your word success with your people. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last Sunday I began, maybe you'll remember, by asking a question. What happens when you resist God? And I suggested that it depends. It depends on what kind of resistance is going on. And I talked about, just broadly speaking, two very different types of resistance. On one hand, there's a resistance that grows out of our weakness, out of our fear, out of our doubt. We saw that exemplified in Moses and we saw how God responded with this amazing patience, reassuring Moses time and time again as he struggled with his doubt and his fear and his reluctance. But I mentioned last Sunday There's another type of resistance, a very different kind, a kind that grows out of a stubborn and hard heart. And we're going to see that exemplified this morning in the king of Egypt, this Pharaoh. And we'll see how God responds to that kind of resistance. And one thing will become perfectly clear this morning. As we look here at this, God will accomplish his purposes, despite resistance. God will always accomplish his purposes. What did Job say to God when he finally came to see clearly, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. What did Solomon, the wisest man of his day, say? Many are the plans of the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. God will accomplish his purposes despite the resistance of the most powerful man over the most powerful nation with its supposedly powerful gods. God will accomplish his purposes to save despite all resistance. You know, in the first message from Exodus from two weeks ago, I asked this question, what what is God doing? And I answered that question this way. He is forming a people and bringing them out of slavery and into a promised place of goodness and freedom. God is forming a people and he is bringing them out of enslavement and into a promised place of goodness and freedom, and he is going to get that done here in Exodus, and he is going to get that done everywhere, in every place, and in every time, and with everyone that he intends to save, he will always accomplish his purpose to save. So let's look at what unfolds here with Pharaoh. I've entitled this message, Pharaoh and the Plagues, Prelude and round one. And let's do what we've been doing in Exodus so far. Let's look and see what's set forth here in God's word. And then having done that, having seen what's here, let's see how this might map onto our own lives and how God's word is speaking to us. So you'll remember how God interacted with Moses, dealing with his doubts, dealing with his fears, patiently reassuring him bringing him to a place of obedience. Look at chapter 7, verse 6. After all of that back and forth between Moses and God, finally, verse 6, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. So now God, having dealt with Moses, the confrontation with Pharaoh is about to begin. Let's read starting there at verse 8. Then... Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So, this is the prelude. Here's the setup. God tells Moses and Aaron listen, Pharaoh's going to ask you for uh, some sign to prove yourself by some miracle. Basically, Pharaoh sees this as a power challenge, a battle between his gods and this God that Moses and Aaron keep talking about. So he's going to ask for a sign, a show of strength. Basically, he's saying, let's see what you got. So Aaron throws down the staff just as God had told Moses to do back in the wilderness, and it turns into a serpent. Once again, Pharaoh sees this, and so he calls his guys, his sorcerers, and they do the same thing. They throw down their staffs, and they all turn into snakes. Listen, make no mistake, Satan's power is real. But look at the middle of verse 12 but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. I just imagine that was an interesting moment there in Pharaoh's throne room. I mean, there's Pharaoh and his servants and all these sorcerers and little Moses and Aaron over here. I mean, not only are his guys now without their magic staffs, but something really ominous just happened. Look back with me for just a moment to chapter 4. Verse 17. This is God talking to Moses back there in the desert in the wilderness of Midian. Chapter 4, verse 17. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Now look down to verse 20. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. This is the staff of God. Yes, Satan has real power. But he is no match for God. He is not in God's league at all. You know, sometimes young Christians will make the mistake of thinking that God and Satan are just equal but opposite forces. And nothing could be further from the truth. Satan is a mere created being. He's puny in God's sight. He's a fallen angel who now kind of does his thing, does his works, In human affairs, often through those who have given themselves knowingly or unknowingly over to him by turning away from God. But he is no match for God. Pharaoh's sorcerer's serpents are swallowed up by the staff of God, foreshadowing Pharaoh's armies being swallowed up at the Red Sea. It's the very same word that's used here in chapter 15. But still... Verse 13, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And so begins the first round of the plagues. Chapter seven, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. So go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals and their ponds and all their pools of water so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile And all the water in the Nile turned into blood And the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank So that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt But the magicians of Egypt did the same By their secret arts Now right here I'm thinking, wait a second if the gods of Egypt, who these guys represent, are powerful and worth worshiping, wouldn't they stop the plague rather than add to it? But the effect of these guys also turning water into blood is that Pharaoh feels that this god of Moses and Aaron is not all that special. See, we can, we can make that kind of stuff happen too. And so back to verse 22. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink for they could not drink of the water of the Nile. Seven days go by. Pharaoh doesn't show his face. So plague number two. Chapter 8, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go in to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me, but if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So again, the magicians are saying, listen, you can control frogs, we can control frogs. But look at verse 8. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people And I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord Remember how Pharaoh responded to the first plague? Chapter 7 verse 23 He went into his house So there's some movement here Pharaoh actually calls Moses and Aaron with a prayer request Plead with the Lord to take away these frogs from me and my people. You know, frogs are kind of cute little things, kind of fun. When my children were little and we'd take a walk out back and go back by our pond, it was always a fun moment when we saw a frog and we'd try to catch it. And we'd bring it back to the house to show mom. And for some reason, mom never wanted them in the house. But you let five frogs loose in your house, or 25, or 125. And it starts to get a little troublesome. So Pharaoh says, please plead with God to get rid of these. This is a remarkable request. I mean, for one thing, he had learned God's name. Did you notice this? Verse eight, then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord. This is the name. Remember that God revealed to Moses there out in the wilderness, Yahweh. I am. Pharaoh had learned this is a real and personal God. He has a name. And Pharaoh was learning something about his power. Verse 9, Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs may be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he, Pharaoh said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Don't miss that so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you, and your houses, and your servants, and your people. They will be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did, according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Wait, wait, what? I thought Pharaoh had agreed. You get rid of the frogs and I'll let the people go. Well, things have kind of gotten back to normal. The calamity is over. The pressure is off. Mrs. Pharaoh isn't constantly screaming in the palace. And Pharaoh hasn't quite figured out what's happening here just yet. So he decides nope. He hardens his heart and he refuses to listen, just like God said he would. So, plague number three, where something very interesting happens. Verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth and there were gnats on man and beast. We don't know exactly what kind of insect it was. Some of your translations might say lice. It's just some little crawling thing. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. And then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. You know, if you've been listening carefully, you've been hearing about parts of God's body. Now, God doesn't literally have body parts. He's not physical like we are. So when the Bible speaks, for example, about the eyes of the Lord ranging to and fro throughout the whole land, it's, it's speaking symbolically. It's trying to communicate God's awareness and his knowledge of everything that is going on. And here in Exodus, for several chapters now, we've been hearing about God's arm and God's hand. Look back with me for a moment to chapter 3, verse 19. God is speaking to Moses, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. Look over at chapter 6, verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Look at chapter 7, verse 4. Pharaoh will not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. And now here in chapter 8, even these pagan sorcerers recognize in the face of this third plague, this is way beyond us. This is the doing of some powerful God. This is the finger of God. But now look at the end of verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. There's a whole new level of resistance going on here. I mean at first, with the turning of water to blood, Pharaoh He didn't think there was much to that. His guys could do the same thing. And with the frogs, I mean, yes, they were obnoxious. I mean, literally obnoxious. But that passed. But now he knows, and his guys confirm it. This is God, and he's bigger than us. And right here, something kicks into Pharaoh's heart, and it's called defiance. We're going to come back to this hardening of his heart thing in just a moment, but what we've seen here in this first round of plagues is just the beginning of this confrontation, this battle between this guy who thinks he's God and the true God showing his power through two weak men. This battle between the gods of Egypt and the one true God of everywhere. So, now, let's ask the question, why is this here in our Bibles? And why are we taking our precious time to look at this old book when we could be doing other things like mowing the lawn? Maybe not yet, but I can see my grass, finally or playing golf, or just relaxing with our families over a leisurely Sunday morning breakfast. Why are we doing this? Well, it's because this is God speaking to us, and he means to feed us and nourish us, actually strengthening our faith week by week and week by week clarifying our thinking about how we actually live our lives and week by week fortifying our wills to live rightly and well with God. So what do we need to make sure gets into us from his words this morning? Two things. Two really important things. First, the foolishness of resisting God, The absolute foolishness of resisting God. Now we see this in the interplay between God's judgment and Pharaoh's resistance. I mean, the initial and obviously foolish external irrationality of it. Pharaoh's sorcerers making more blood, conjuring up more frogs. But then the increasingly dangerous internal irrationality. We see that in Pharaoh's different responses from plague one to plague two to plague three. First, I'm just going to go into my house and I'm going to hide and I'm going to hope it goes away. I'll just not deal with it. I'll pretend God's not doing anything to get my attention. You ever done that? Just hope he goes away? And then second, he appears to yield, Pharaoh does, as soon as as things kind of return to being okay, as soon as the crisis is over. Well, there's no sense changing anything now. You ever done that? You know, you get really serious with God when some crisis comes, but once the crisis is over, you just settle back to where you were. And then third, defiance. I don't care what God says. Ever done that? Do you remember what Moses said back in chapter 8, verse 10? Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And yet, here's Pharaoh, despite being shown that God is God, saying, I'll trust myself, thank you very much. My plan and this world that I've created with me in charge, this absolutely foolish self-exaltation, self-reliance. I mean, this helps us make sense of this whole hardening of Pharaoh's heart thing, which we can stumble over at times. Who hardens Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh hardens Pharaoh's heart. Who hardens Pharaoh's heart? God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Listen, I want you to see this pattern. Follow with me here. Chapter three, verse 19. But I know, this is God speaking, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go. There is something in him that will resist. Chapter four. Verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. God at some point in the future is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I will do that. Chapter 5, verse 2. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh exercising his will. Chapter 7, verse 3. God speaking, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will do that. But now notice something. As the plagues start, Chapter 7, verse 13. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Chapter 7, verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret art, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them. Chapter 8, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen. Chapter 8, verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And this goes on. Chapter 8, verse 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart. Listen. We humans are created such that the choices we make contribute to the formation of our character, who we are. And then that character influences the choices we make going forward. Pharaoh's choices increasingly set him in his ways, and it's a dangerous game because none of us knows exactly when the point of no return will be reached. But at some point God says, okay, Pharaoh. And he confirms the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Chapter nine, verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them. And that's how it is through the rest of the plagues. Chapter 10, verse 20. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 10, verse 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 11, verse 10, Moses and Aaron did all of these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Friends, it is a foolish and dangerous thing to resist God with a stubborn heart. Because despite all of his power and his authority and his self-confidence, Pharaoh will not win. He cannot. And it's the same for any of us. You may not have calamity like this going on in your life. Things may even appear to be going well with you, but there can be a spiritual process of hardening happening, a hardening that leads to God's final and irreversible judgment. God's word is so clear. Everyone who is arrogant of heart is an abomination to the Lord be assured, he will not go unpunished. Proverbs sixteen five. He who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be cut off, and that without remedy. Proverbs 29, verse 1. We cannot step away from this truth that God will judge, and it will lead, as with these plagues, ultimately to death. But, I want you to notice, even in this judgment, there is mercy. God doesn't start with death. This first round of plagues, it's like warning shots, fired over the bow of Pharaoh's ship, trying to make him change course. I mean, compared to the death of the firstborn in every household, water turned into blood, and frogs all over the place are nothing. And at any point, Pharaoh could have humbled himself and asked for mercy and escaped that final judgment. God is a God of holiness who will not be trifled with by us, but God also so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus died bearing our sins in Himself on the cross and saving all who trust in Him from God's final judgment. It is foolish to independently resist God's judgment, but there is a truth here even greater than that, and it's the truth, the second thing that we must get here this morning. That is that God is absolutely committed to accomplish his purpose despite all resistance. Yes, it's absolutely foolish to resist God, but God is absolutely committed to accomplishing his purpose despite any and all resistance. And what is his purpose? God is forming a people and bringing them out of slavery And into a promised place of goodness and freedom, and he's absolutely committed to getting that done. This is for our good, of course, but first it's for the glory of his name. Look with me for a moment again back to chapter 7 verse 17. Something very interesting happens. Chapter 7, verse 17, Thus says the Lord. Now this is Moses speaking to Pharaoh, but he's speaking the words of God. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. You know what I hear there? I hear an echo of something that Pharaoh said earlier. Look back to chapter 5. Let me read verses 1 and 2. After Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. And here, chapter seven, verse 17, God is responding very directly to that statement. Chapter 7, verse 17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. So God will accomplish his purposes for the glory of his name, but it it will also be as he fully intends it to be for the very great good of his people. His plan is to rescue us for our good. His plan is to save us for our good. Do you remember that wonderful passage that we looked at last week in chapter 6? I know I'm asking you to flip in your Bibles a lot today, but this, oh, this is so good. Chapter 6, verse 6, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and bringing them out of slavery and into a promised place of goodness and freedom, and he is absolutely committed to accomplish that purpose. In which commitment you should find incredible comfort and confidence and encouragement and joy and hope if someone comes up to me and says, where does your joy come from? Where does your confidence, your hope come from? My answer to them will be it comes from God's absolute commitment to accomplish his purpose, to bring me out of a place of enslavement and into a promised place of goodness and freedom. That's where my joy comes from. That's where my hope comes from. He has promised. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. For those who belong to him, all things work together. For the good of those who love him and are called according to his promise. How do we know that God's going to keep those promises? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all these things? Friends, he has accomplished his purpose back then we read about here in the book of Exodus, despite the resistance of powerful human and spiritual forces, he will accomplish his purposes now, to gather his people and bring them into a place of goodness and freedom, and the gates of hell will not prevail against him. How grateful I am for this book and its truth how grateful we all should be, that God would not just tell us, but show us what his salvation is like and what he is like. He is a God who saves. And this particular instance of that here in this book of Exodus is here to nourish our faith and to help us say, yes, the Lord, this Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will trust and exalt in him. Amen.